0: Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host Niall Green and in this episode we're going to be discussing the multi-religious history of medieval Bach, the town in northern Afghanistan that went from being a sacred Buddhist centre to a holy city for the Muslims of Central Asia. During the early medieval period, Afghanistan, and especially the city of Balkh were the crossroads of Asia. Along the Silk Road there spread Buddhists, Jews, Hindus, and by the 7th century, Muslims as well. Over the next 45 minutes, we're going to be asking how these communities interacted during their centuries of coexistence in northern Afghanistan. And we'll also be asking how it was that Afghanistan converted to Islam. And in the process, we'll see how Balkh itself was transformed from being a Buddhist to a Muslim holy city. We'll be helped in these explorations by some exciting new sources that were found about 10 years ago. The so-called Afghan a set of around 200 texts in six different languages that date from the 11th century, and give us an exciting insight into the different communities that coexisted in this multi-religious heartland of Central Asia. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Arzu Azad, a Senior Research Fellow at the Oriental Institute of Oxford University. In addition to her many articles, Dr. Azad is the author of the book Sacred Landscape in Medieval Afghanistan, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Hello Azu, welcome to Akbar's Chamber.
1: Hello Nile. great to be here.
0: Well today we're going to be talking about these two large scale sets of historical processes one might say which are conversion to Islam and interreligious interactions and relationships and we're going to be looking at a, a long period of history from the beginnings of the Islamic period in the, the 7th century through to around the 13th century, around the, 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 the Mongol invasions pretty much. And the place we're going to be talking about are places that I don't think will be familiar to any of our listeners, but we both think they should be. Yes. And those places are the early medieval and indeed the, the pre-Islamic, as well as Islamic city of Balkh in what's today northern mm. Afghanistan, and also a place that may be more familiar the region of Bamiyan, famous for its Buddhist statues in what is today central Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But let's start off with Balkh itself and perhaps you can tell us in a bit more detail where is Balkh and why is it so important? <laughs>
1: Of course, you're right. Balkh nowadays is not necessarily a place that people will recognize, but if we transpose ourselves back in time to the arrival, the days when Islam arrived to Afghanistan, uh, which Balkh is located in today, um, it was very well known. It was perhaps an Oxford of its day, if you want, or even a New York of its day. It was a major city. Uh, It was an urban metropolis. It was an oasis town, which was watered by snowmelt coming from the famous Hindu Kush mountains to the south of it. To the north of it was the Oxus River, which takes you nowadays to what is um, Uzbekistan and the rest of Central Asia. To the south of the Hindu Kush, you have India. And to the east, you have what is today um, Pakistan and also Uh, Tibet and China, Um, and then to the west you have Iran. So it's a very strategically, geostrategic location that Bach finds itself in. So it was an important um, place, not only because of its location, but because it was incredibly old. um, for In this region, one of the oldest cities that uh, we knew of, Alexander the Great, um, in the fourth century BC conquered it and married his Central Asian wife. There, there are some traditions that say even before that, Zoroaster, the great Iranian prophet, also known as Zarathustra, uh, had died in Bach. There are other traditions uh, of more dubious uh, value that tell us that biblical figures like Job and Abel were buried here. Uh, but that doesn't matter. We don't need to be um, too worried about the authenticity of these. What they what they tell us, these accounts, is that Bauch was an important place that people wanted to associate historical, great historical events with. Bauch was also one of the jewels of the Buddhist world just up to the arrival of the Muslims. And the Nobahar was the famous Buddhist temple and monastery that pilgrims from far away China and Korea would come and visit and write about and tell us about the incredible riches that it held, the relics of the Buddha, which were extremely rare, and also its monks whose excellence, scholarly excellence was noted and um, famous. Bauch also then became very quickly an important Islamic city, already under the Umayyad caliphs who were based in Damascus uh, already from the 7th century onwards. And, and it,
0: they're running from 661 to 750 on they?
1: That's right, that's right. And um, very quickly Baghd then becomes known as the Dome of Islam, the Quppat al-Islam, the mother of all cities, Umar al balad And we read about the first congregational mosque that is built here, that is so beautiful that um, you read about it in histories from far away Morocco. Um, So Bauch is a very important place in the medieval period. Of course, you're right, Balkh nowadays is not necessarily a place that people will recognize, but if we transpose ourselves back in time to the arrival, the days when Islam arrived to Afghanistan, uh, which Balkh is located in today, um, it was very well known. It was perhaps an Oxford of its day, if you want, or even a New York of its day, it was a major city. Uh, It was an urban metropolis. It was an oasis town, which was watered by snowmelt coming from the famous Hindu Kush mountains to the south of it. To the north of it was the Oxus River, which takes you nowadays to what is um, Uzbekistan and the rest of Central Asia. To the south of the Hindu Kush, you have India. And to the east, you have what is today um, Pakistan and also Uh, Tibet and China, Um, and then to the west you have Iran. So it's a very strategically geostrategic location that Bagh finds itself in. So it was an important um, place, not only because of its location, but because it was incredibly old. um, For in this region, one of the oldest cities that uh, we knew of, Alexander the Great, um, in the fourth century BC, conquered it and married his Central Asian wife. There there are some traditions that say even before that, Zoroaster, the great Iranian prophet, also known as Zarathustra, uh, had died in Bauch. There are other traditions uh, of more dubious uh, value that tell us that biblical figures like Job and Abel were buried here. Uh, but that doesn't matter. We don't need to be um, too worried about the authenticity of these. What they what they tell us, these accounts, is that Bauch was an important place that people wanted to associate historical, great historical events with. Bauch was also one of the jewels of the Buddhist world, just up to the arrival of the Muslims, and the Nobahar was the famous Buddhist temple and monastery that pilgrims from far away China and Korea would come and visit and write about and tell us about the incredible riches that it held, the relics of the Buddha, which were extremely rare, and also its monks whose excellence, scholarly excellence, was noted and um, famous. Bauch also then became very quickly an important Islamic city. already under the Umayyad Caliphs, who were based in Damascus, uh, already from the 7th century onwards. And, and it,
0: they're running from 661 to 750,
1: aren't they? That's yes. right, that's right. And um, very quickly Baghd then becomes known as the Dome of Islam, the Quppat al-Islam, the mother of all cities, Umar al-Balaad. And we read about the first congregational mosque that is built here, that is so beautiful that um, you read about it in histories from far away Morocco. Um, So Bauch is a very important place in the medieval period.
0: So this is fascinating. So we, we, we're getting a sense here that this region of the, although today's Afghanistan, it's kind of the Balkh is in the flatlands of the plainlands, really, of, of what we might talk about geographically as Central Asia. Yes. And yet, although we often think of, of Islamic history as being really based in or set in the Middle East and in the Arab world, thinking about Balkh gives us this sense that, that from the early history of Islam, There's this uh, engagement with these much older cultural and civilizational centres, these sacred spaces of other religions, particularly of of Buddhism, which we'll talk about in more detail. And also, I think something else we will talk about as well, surely, is these other linguistic regions, and particularly the regions associated with the growth of of the Persian language. Because Balkh, as you have already hinted, was one of the major centres of Buddhism, and indeed for the transmission of Buddhism out of India, through the Silk Road through Central Asia in, into China yeah. and hence is this very important Buddhist uh, religious space in the sacred geography and that's one of the themes that we'll be thinking about today as well as we start to talk about conversion or, or what, what scholars sometimes call acculturation to Islam as yeah. being not just a mental or faith-based uh, process but also something involving landscapes and, and space as well. <laughs>
1: As you put very well, uh, it's it's an, uh, a rich, culturally rich environment that we're here in. Um, and so what we learned from the Bauch case and also from Bamiyan, which I know we'll talk about soon, is that um, Islam was not brought in by the sword and people were not converted by force overnight. <laughs> Rather, the Muslims came into this region, they started to exact taxes from people, but they let people pretty much continue with life as before. They were able to continue to practice their own religion. In fact, it was in the caliphate's interest for people to do so, because we had um, the poll tax put in place here on non-Muslims, and so there was a financial incentive, in fact, for um, the caliphate for people not to convert to Islam. Um, And so what you find is that 400 years or so after the arrival of Islam to this region is when only then do we start to get majority populations in different parts of Afghanistan.
0: And this is a pattern actually we see through through much of what becomes the Islamic world, isn't it? Whether in Egypt and whether with the survival of Coptic Christianity, whether in, in, in India, what's today Pakistan, where there was a strong yeah. Buddhist as well as what, the Hindu community. And yes. again, all of these different uh, communities and their religious institutions in particular yeah. have the, this, as you've mentioned, this politics, this, this Jizya, which is... It enables them to continue to flourish in many ways. But also, of course, as you say, there's that financial imperative on the, the earlier Arab conquerors from the 7th century onwards to have a laissez-faire attitude in some ways yes. for this financial cost. And that creates then, what we'll move on to look at as we go on in our conversation, this coexistence of religious communities yes. and more complex forms of, of coexistence that we'll look at with the documentation as we, as we move on.
1: Yes, exactly. So uh, what you find, for example, and, uh, when you look at the documentation and here we're, we've got, we're very lucky to um, have at our disposal a set of documents which were only uh, discovered recently and came uh, into, the, into public view in, over the last five years, known as the Afghan Geniza, or a set of documents um, which were written by Muslims and Jews between the 11th and early 13th century. And these are documents that you and I have in our homes. They could be bills that we have, they could be marriage contracts or whatever. And they give us a glimpse, a very rare glimpse into the everyday lives of people living in this region. And uh, what we can see is that Muslims and uh, Jews were doing business together, for example. We can see that funeral dirges Uh, included prophets from the different religions mentioned. We can also see that Jews were um, using Sharia courts in cases of inheritance. That's something you also find in the Cairo Geniza documents from Egypt that are from the same period. Um, So that's um, fascinating. And then we also have the Bactrian documents, which um, um, are from 300 years earlier. Uh, Also from this very region, and in which we see that people were, um, I mean the locals, were practicing local cultic religions as well. Uh, We find mentions of the Muslims living here, we find mention of Turkish princesses and queens living here who practice other religions. So it's very much a multi-religious environment.
0: And this is fascinating, isn't it, bringing bringing up the the Jewish communities of not just medieval Afghanistan that have survived in Afghanistan until very recently. Yes. I think there there are one or two Afghan Jews left today, but nonetheless... There's this thousands of year history from the period of the Babylonian exile, effectively, yes. and then the movement of these uh, medieval Jewish communities outwards into into Afghanistan and Central Asia and Bukhara, which becomes a very important yes. centre of medieval medieval Jewry. Yes. And and these documents that you you mentioned, particularly this this Afghan Geniza, the word Geniza, of course, is a Hebrew term, isn't it? As you yes. mentioned, there's a famous Geniza, a Hebrew term that means a uh, um, sort of a treasury of, or a, a yes. documentary store where where Jewish documents would be kept and the famous one in the Ben Ezra Synagogue yes. in Cairo found in the 1890s. So it's us as scholars who are calling this this Afghan Geniza yes. and partly because so many of the documents are partly in, in Arabic and Persian as perhaps we might expect from medieval Afghanistan but also documents written by the Jews of Central Asian Afghanistan in Judeo-Persian and in Judeo-Arabic, as well as actually in Hebrew, yes. and these are, as you've said, these kind of household documents, documents yes. that tell us about these relationships between communities.
1: That's right, that's right. So we have we have wonderful examples here of these relationships. We have a letter of a, a son writing to his mother, the mother is in Bamiyan, he's, he's in another small town telling her how much he misses her. Um, We have also bits of poetry, which are the earliest um, written surviving texts in Persian, some of the earliest we know in the world. Uh, We have bits of history also written um, about uh, dynasties that we know about from much later sources, but these uh, documents are much closer to the times. So probably a lot more believable what we find in these texts so it's it's an it's a fascinating resource a word on um, geniza so I, I use it but um, i think we need to be aware that uh, geniza is also um, an arabic term janaza which refers to burials yeah and the idea is that documents are not destroyed but they're somehow kept stored buried or mm-hmm. whatever um, and this is a practice that you don't only find amongst Jews. For example, in, in Damascus, uh, from the same period, uh, 11th, 12th centuries, uh, there are documents that were kept in a qubba, what's known as a kuppah. It's a, a, a sort of a store as well of lots of documents. So it wasn't necessarily just a Jewish practice. Why these documents were kept, we don't know. The, the notion that um, these had the word of God in them and therefore um, they couldn't be destroyed is not really holding true because a lot of these documents don't have the word God in them. So was this some kind of archive, some kind of library? We don't really know. <laughs>
0: And it's really apt, isn't it, that these paper documents have survived in, in this region. There are paper, and actually, as, you, as we might discuss, uh, the documents, particularly the earlier Bactrian documents, on leather and other materials, yes. we don't actually think of as yes. being, uh, as well as parchment and leather and paper. But the paper is particularly apt, isn't it, because it's along the, the Silk Road, or what we might call for our purposes, the paper road from China, yes. that paper and paper-making technology first enters the Islamic world yes. through in Samarkand, and then actually makes its way through Afghanistan, through Iran, and ultimately yes. to to the West through through Islamic Spain. Yes. So it's really apt, isn't it? The paper, and I think the the Persian word and the Arabic word for paper, kharaz, kharaz in Persian, is actually. Uh, the scholars have debated this, but from a Chinese root word anyway, so yes. this paper road. Yes. But anyway, I'm going off an- another side road but that perhaps we need.
1: But just to say on the paper, what's fascinating is, and you're absolutely right, and paper was a very, is a prized commodity, and these documents don't come from the big cities of Bach and Bamiyan, they come from the peripheral areas around these big cities, and yet they still use this very prized commodity of paper, but the reason why we know it's so prized is because a lot of these papers are actually recycled. So you you might have a, a contract, a page of a contract on one side of the paper and on the back side it might have been used as a, for business accounting purposes and a lot of these things are dated so you might see that there's one or two years pass between the reuse and the original use, so so it's a fascinating uh, also testament to how people were um, archiving, managing their documents and their paperwork and paper itself.
0: So let's dig in a little more deeply into this set of. 200 or so documents that have been found in half a dozen languages that were described whether Arabic and Persian, judeo persian or Judeo-Arabic. So that's to say um, the Arabic and Persian languages written in the Hebrew script, as Mm -hmm. well as Aramaic and Hebrew proper. Mm -hmm. So there's really multilingual as well as multi-religious set of documents that have been found um, around 2013. And let's Move into perhaps a, an example of one of those and, and what they tell us about, let's say, the nitty gritty of, of life in this multi ethnic, multi religious, and certainly multilingual society in, uh, in the, what, the 11th century.
1: Mm-hmm. So, from the Hebrew documents, what we can learn is that they all seem to have come from one family archive which um, was kept over the generations. And what we can see is that um, these Jewish um, business people, they were landowners and they were uh, uh, money lenders as well. And what we can learn is that they had counterparts, Muslim counterparts, also over the generations. So these relationships lasted several generations. They were close, they were very close. So that's something really fascinating that we're going to pursue further in these projects that we're about to start in Oxford, where we're going to study exactly all these documents and try to ascertain these sorts of inter-religious relationships and patterns of conversion. Um, another example, I'll take you back in time a little bit to the Bactrian documents. These were written um, between the, four, the fourth and the eighth century, Um, possibly also pertaining to a family archive over many centuries. Um, In the 8th century, we're already in the Islamic period. The Muslims are already here, we know that because they're mentioned in the documents. Um, But um, towards the early Abbasid period, so the Abbasid Caliphate, which was based in Baghdad now, um, what we find is we have some documents written in Arabic And we have some documents written in Bactrian, which is an Iranian language written in Greek script. It's a hangover from Alexander the Great's conquests, which I mentioned earlier. Um, And we have the same people mentioned in both these sets of documents. And what we can see is that in the Bactrian documents, it's a family of four brothers who jointly married one woman. This was a common practice in the region and still practiced in parts of Tibet, even today. And it was a coping mechanism to avoid parceling up um, quite limited amounts of land across different uh, mothers. If you want families created by different mothers, so here you would have one mother and all the um, property would be kept within one family. So we find this practice um, in, as I said, already in the early Islamic period, continuing. But then in the Arabic documents, a brother from the same family seems to have branched off and married the same woman just for himself. And what he has done is he has adopted Arabic names, so he has converted to Islam. His wife, who was actually a slave was emancipated and also converted to Islam, as we can tell from having adopted an Arabic name, because these documents give their pre their Bactrian names and their Arabic names, and their children also all have Arabic names. So this is a, an example of where how we can trace the conversion patterns through these documents. And did these
0: marriage and inheritance practices change at that point of, let's say, the point of conversion or, yeah. or not?
1: that's something we would love to know but unfortunately the Bactrian documents end right at that period and then we have this 300 year gap until we get to the Afghan Geniza. And it's so have, tantalizing isn't it? It that is.
0: For ever since the, the beginnings I guess of modern studies of Afghan history we've we've had nothing like this. We've had no. such famous literary works as Al-Biruni's book Al-Hind, this Al-Biruni, the great Central Asian and in some ways Afghan scholar from moving through that space, dies in 1048, writes about this, the multi-ethnic society of medieval North India and Afghanistan to some degree. But we haven't had this limited, but nonetheless extraordinary historical torchlight, isn't it? These documents of everyday life that... that, uh, that, as you mentioned, they're just now being studied in Oxford and in Jerusalem and in one or two other places, maybe. But we don't know yet perhaps what they will uh, uncover for us about our understanding of this really much more complex society than we perhaps previously reckoned with. That's right, absolutely. Well, let's move on a little back to Balkh itself then, because these documents were found more in the Bamiyan region uh, of uh, what's today central Afghanistan. And we'll move back to where we opened up with, with uh, the city of Balkh, now a, a city in ruins somewhat to the west of the, the, the main northern Afghan city of, of Mazar-e-Sharif, itself mm-hmm. a holy center for, for Muslims of the region that we might talk about.
1: Yes.
0: And so, Balmian, of course, as perhaps many of, of our listeners will, will know, was a famous Buddhist center. And as we've already said, so was Balkh in the pre-Islamic mm-hmm. and indeed uh, in the early Islamic period as well. But as the centuries go by, Bach itself becomes an important Muslim religious center, mm-hmm. and in some ways an important Muslim sacred space. And we're very fortunate that we have a very rich text about that too, don't we? A text that you've written a fascinating book about. And that text is the the, the et Bach, mm-hmm. the merits of Bach, let's say. That's right. You might unpack that title a bit more for us. So what does this text, the merits of Bach, the the Bach, tell us about the evolution of Islam in what's today in northern Afghanistan mm. and perhaps Central Asia more generally.
1: Mm. Yeah, The Fazale Baugh, The Merits of Balkh was written in the late 12th century and it was written in Persian and it was written according to a very common way of writing history at this time which was using biographies of Islamic scholars to tell the history of a place. <laughs> So this is happening in lots of different centres around this region. Um, and what, uh, what's interesting is that these biographies are of scholars, Islamic scholars. So through them, uh, because they are chronologically organised from the time of the Prophet up to the time of writing in the late 12th centuries, we can sort of trace the development of this class of ulama, um, because it is developing from scratch.
0: And um, Ulama is the, the Arabic word for the learned, the learned men, in some ways the clerics of the Islamic yes, world, the, the right. religious class.
1: That's right, that's right. Um, so what we, what we learn is that in the, in the early days of Islam, these clerics, these scholars, are coming from the heartlands of Islam, where, it's, where it all started. The Prophet is from, was from Arabia, of course. So from Arabia, but also where the caliphal centers were, that was in Syria and in Iraq. So these people are moving into Central Asia and they're starting to teach people in Central Asia about Islam and starting to get people locally and regionally interested in the scholarship around it. But very quickly, um, Central Asia itself is no longer a passive recipient but becomes an active contributor to Islamic scholarship. And so you have scholars moving into the Western Islamic world to meet their peers, to sit with them, to learn with them, to discuss uh, the sayings of the Prophet, the Hadith, which of which there are by now books and books and books. There are also other books that are um, growing on studies on the Quran, interpretations of the holy book, the Quran, uh, and so on. So you find that. But you also find people from the West now starting to travel to Central Asia to learn with scholars in Central Asia and also to perform pilgrimages to shrines of these now famous scholars. So some of the greatest scholars of Hadith, sayings of the Prophet, were Central Asian and they flourished in this time, 9th, 10th century.
0: And one of those is the the figure simply known as Al-Bukhari. That's right. He from Bukhara, the city somewhat to the north of of Balkh in what's now Uzbekistan and Muslims around the world today will largely rely on two canonical collections of hadith, the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, yes. one by someone called al-Muslim and the other one by al-Bukhari. So this gives us a real sense of the centrality to Islam worldwide today of those early Central Asian scholars.
1: Absolutely. So you find Central Asia being a, an active participant in the growth of this ulama class. But that does not mean that they were just good students. They were actually also adjusting a lot of these original interpretations to the local needs of Central Asia, where you had completely different demographic makeup, you had a completely different ecology here, um, you're not in a, very, in a desert area or anything, you've got mountains, you've got oasis towns, you've got uh, uh, socio-demographic realities that are completely different from Arabia or Egypt for that matter. And these scholars are adjusting their interpretations to, to, to make Islam more palatable and usable and useful in the Central Asian context.
0: So the Fazali Bach, as well as the wider corpus of, of new documents that have been found in the Afghan Geniza, have given us a sense then of how the religion of Islam is being adapted to the, the different human and, 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 and wider geographical environment of, mm-hmm. of Central Asia. Could you give us an example of how that was working on the ground?
1: Yes. Um, so in one very famous uh, legal Islamic uh, Treatise called the Nawazil by an Al Samarkandi, we read about um, a legal stipulation that in the case of unintentional homicide, so you kill someone by mistake, then um, there is an indemnity due, so some kind of insurance money you need to or compensation you need to pay to the affected parties, and um, this comes straight out of Iraq into uh, balkh and um, what we find is that then the Balkhi masters don't ad- adopt it wholesale but adjust it because in Balkh, family structures are not, uh, we don't have these large extended families and so it's simply dropped from the legal books. Uh, so this is an example of how the, the law, the Islamic law, is being adjusted to local needs.
0: Right. and this is And this process of adjustment is happening by this group of uh, uh, what we've called a class of, of, of scholars, religious scholars, the ulama, the learned, as yes. the word means in Arabic. And, and as you've described for us, originally they were moving out of Middle Eastern centers, whether yes. Baghdad or places in the Arabian Peninsula. But by the time of the composition of the fazal e in the, uh, the 12th and early, early, well, the 13th century, this, the many, many scholars from Balch or from yes. the wider region, such as Samarkand themselves. And that's, in a sense, what, what the book is about, isn't it? The Fazali Balch. It's, yes. it's 70 biographies of these ulama yes. who are from Balch and a region why Balch is a, a major Islamic centre, a major scholarly centre. Yes. So there's a sense of urban pride here, isn't yes. there? Of intellectual pride. Yes. Could you perhaps tell us about some of, some of those figures, some of those 70 celebrated sheikhs? Oh, yes.
1: Um, absolutely. So these 70 people were obviously carefully selected and the author tells us himself in his own beautiful way that of course Bach had thousands of incredible scholars but he had to pick 70 and the reason why was because he wanted that people, so what he means is I guess a wider audience not just an academic or a scholarly audience, to be able to benefit from Uh, them as models and to learn from them and also to learn about their own history. You're right about pride of place and you see that again and again a lot of these local histories cropping up and feeling this pride in the place that that they are living in, the authors are living in. You don't, interestingly, what you don't find is a pride in what are more contemporary um, terms like being Iranian, for example, or greater Iran. You don't find these uh, concepts in these local histories. Nor there is a
0: notion, there's not a notion of Afghanistan, is there, a word that doesn't start to get used itself. That's right. Afghanistan to the 19th century. The term Afghan itself is being used for particular peoples and. Medieval right. Persian text, but but yeah, so we're talking about Afghanistan, but that's not in people's minds in the time of the Fazl exactly. in the 13th century.
1: That's right. So uh, countries like Afghanistan, these these nation states or these terms are are very new compared to our period, which is from a thousand years ago, eight hundred years ago. Um, the pride is with the the city very much, and perhaps not just a city, but a city-state. So for example, Bauch is an urban metropolis, but at the same time, it's got a huge uh, rural uh, periphery. And by periphery, I don't mean that these are backwaters, these are active places where agriculture is being performed in in a large scale. And, um, And then even outside of these peripheries, Bauch is in charge, if you want, of a wider province which um, would be the size of modern-day countries. So um, it's pride in that whole city-state, if you want, structure. Absolutely.
0: And one of these places in Baal's uh, hinterland, or one of the smaller places that are associated with and and originally dependent on it, is what becomes the major centre of northern Afghanistan in the subsequent period, because... Um, in between the, the when the, the Fazali balch is written, it's written as I've learned from you and from your book, it's, it's written originally in Arabic, isn't it? And then we have the Persian translation about 60 years later, which is what survived. And when that the Arabic version is written, it's just before about a decade before Genghis Khan and the Mongols come and destroy Baal. Baal sort of survives afterwards, but actually, what happens in subsequent centuries is one of its Rural or small, small town satellites, yes. the town that's now called the major city of Afghanistan today, Mazari Sharif, which yes. literally means the, the holy place of pilgrimage, yes. associated by, uh, as believed by Afghan Muslims and Central Asian Muslims, as the place where the Prophet Muhammad's son in law, Ali, is buried. Yes. And the Fazali Baal, as well as telling us about the, the, the sacredness of Baal through, through the scholars who live there also gives us a sense of Bach as being, let's say, more tangibly and physically a sacred space yes. through its own shrines that uh, that ultimately, over the passage of centuries to the modern day, are uh, yes. uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of outshone by mazar Sharif. sharif yes. But they have a significance in their own right. And perhaps you can yes. tell us about some of those, that sacred space of Bach itself. <laughs>
1: So, Mazar-e-Sharif um, the, the, is also a modern name, but um, as you said, refers to a site that is now holy to Shiites, um, all Muslims, but especially Shiites, um, and it was discovered, if you want, only in in the 14th century, uh, but it, it's no coincidence, I think, that it was discovered here, because this is a place where the space was always sacred, and the Fazer al-Bagh emphasizes that, and the sacredness comes through basically shrine structures, which is also the mazar sharif is also the 14th century shrine of Ali, as you rightly said, was supposed to be of Ali. Um, and also, if you go further back in time, as the fazal e emphasizes, these shrines that um, were built in the medieval period for the scholars, who are uh, profiled in the fazal are located on top of sites that were already sacred in biblical times. I mentioned earlier that there are these traditions that Job and Abel are buried in Bach, and these are precisely the sites on which these shrines are located. So and then um, the author of the fazal le Bauch is at pains to emphasize that it is precisely the sacredness of this space, the space of Balch, that has um, that has led to the city's um, continuing existence over the centuries, over the millennia, and despite or uh, against all the odds. And as you said, the Mongols there are sort of the the um, mm-hmm. the prime example really of of these odds. A word on the on the Arabic. Um, we don't actually have an Arabic original version surviving, so of the Faza of the yeah. So it may well be that the author claims it's based on an Arabic uh, version to add uh, some importance or authenticity to it. Whether it existed or not, we don't know. Um, but
0: um, and that, that in itself is a kind of a signal of this kind of his, his this historical conversation that that so that is throughout. Islam and Islamic works over the centuries as part of a tradition of yes. looking back to their own heritage. And yes. part of that heritage is, let's say, more strictly Islamic and Arabic heritage. Yes. The author, the Persian author, Al-Husseini, of the, the Persian version of the, yes. the the Faisal, claiming, perhaps yes. there was, perhaps there wasn't, as he said, an Arabic version to link his book with an earlier Arabic Islamic tradition. Yes. But part of throughout wider Islamic tradition, more generally, there's just been this this sense of a tradition that's rooted back to the Bible and ultimately the Old Testament and indeed the the Old Testament prophets, yes. Ayyub in Arabic, Job yes. that you've yes. mentioned, yes. that are part of Islamic tradition yes. as well as Jewish tradition within the area. Yes. And and I think that's really fascinating because that really links Central Asia to what we often think of as a biblical landscape of, of Israel, Palestine, perhaps greater Syria. Yes. But actually for, for Muslims at least and for many medieval Jews as well, mm. that biblical and by extension Quranic sacred landscape, yes. extends into Central Asia with Baal and Ayyub, and indeed even to Sri Lanka, yes. where medieval Muslims uh, and, and others uh, believe that, that Adam, dam in Arabic, mm-hmm. Adam of the, mm-hmm. the, the Biblical creation story, mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. came to earth, isn't it, with this big yes. footprint. Yes. So we have these kind of overlapping mm-hmm. sacred spaces, yes. don't we, that Absolutely. are really there through the long durée of Baal's history.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Islam is, of, is of course, the, the youngest of the great world religions. And so, as you rightly said, the Quran mentions all these biblical figures and they are prophets who are equally venerated. It's just that in Islam, Muhammad is the last and the greatest of, of the prophets. But yes, you have all these traditions, and there is that, as you say, that desire to link. Uh, Central Asia into these um, traditions, Biblical traditions. There's also the Buddhist tradition, um, for example, that, as we discussed, um, was, was very prominent here. And while we don't have textual evidence on continuities of Buddhist traditions, and that's largely because the texts that we have surviving were written by Islamic scholars, who by the time they were writing had didn't know enough about Buddhism and were very vague about it. And they, there might be references to it, but they actually don't use the term necessarily of Buddhism. But what we do have is, is the landscape, I mean, literally the landscape, if you walk through, Baloch province today, even Mazar Sharif and the old site of Baloch that you mentioned, slightly west of Mazar Sharif, you see all these um, structures, uh, domed structures, and not one, two, or three. You see dozens, hundreds of domed structures everywhere. But because the building material is mud brick, we don't have enough detail to say for sure that these are Buddhists. But if you, if you, um, then. Look at the Chinese Pilgrims accounts, which describe hundreds of stupas, uh, so domed shrines. in the Bach area, it seems compelling to to then conclude that this might well be these stupas that were mentioned. So um, and of course the the stupas are reliquaries and they are they are shrines. And so perhaps there was this is some kind of evidence of some transmission. Of sac ideas of sacred space um, into the Islamic narratives as well through through the Buddhist narratives
0: that reflects in many ways the the uh, conversion or the, the the shifting of the sacred landscapes of a pre-christian Europe isn't it yes. where many churches and, and 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 cathedrals are built over pre-christian sites but staying with with this with this Buddhist element I mean because you're right that the, the when we have a sort of a, a sense of, of, of Buddhism in Central Asia, Afghanistan, we think of the Bamyan Buddhas. But they're the exception rather than the rule, aren't they? There yes. were these, you know, kind of perhaps a handful of discovered and undiscovered of these lost statues. But far mm. more common mm. as the, 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 the physical symbols of Buddhist sacred space were these mounds that, as you said, are called stupas. Mm-hmm. But they're overgrown now. But there were literally thousands of them yes. in the Jalalabad region of yeah. eastern Afghanistan. And around Balkh, because these were the trading routes for Buddhists and then subsequently of Muslims. But I think something that you've, you've raised that I think is really really fascinating for us to think about is that is that within the Islamic tradition, emerging as it did in the multi-religious environment of, of Arabia, Syria, the Middle East, Egypt, mm-hmm. Christians and Muslims were part of the the, the Quranic, the, the prophetic experience that Muhammad was familiar with, part yes. of the Quran itself. Yes. But Buddhism wasn't, simply as a fact of of where Islam emerged and where the Prophet lived his life. And yet as time goes on, even though uh, there isn't anything like as detailed a theological or indeed sociological understanding of of Jews and Christians, of Jewish religiosity and Christian religiosity, Mm -hmm. there are hints and symbols of of, of the the memory at least of of Buddhism and particularly Buddhist sacred spaces that go through the poetry and prose written in afghanistan yes you're and right and particularly in persian
1: yes you're right uh, in persian poetry the image of the boat or uh, which which can be translated as buddha is an image of beauty the image of the moon face is also a metaphor for beauty and so these are direct um, borrowings if you want of buddhists um, imagery which people would have been familiar with who were writing this poetry and a lot of the earliest Persian poetry comes from these very places, balkh for example, very important um, cradle place really of both the early Persian language, which if uh, for people who might not be completely um, uh, in the nose that is, is a different language from Arabic. Um, it's from a different language family. it's an Indo-european, Uh, language which um, develops out of pre-Islamic languages that were uh, spoken here and written here but with the arrival of the Muslims then gets an added colouring and importantly then also adopts a different script, adopts the Arabic script. This language is then spoken throughout what is today Iran, Afghanistan, Central Asia, also um, northern India, Pakistan, and so on. Um, so um, so this is uh, um, this is the region that would have had contact and would have seen uh, Buddhist uh, statues, paintings. Um, stupas and so on and so would would it, it seems when you when you understand it that way it's not surprising that the image of the Buddha appears and is ubiquitous in Persian poetry even still today
0: well that's fascinating isn't it this sense that that Persian the language that uh, the sp- Persian speakers call it Farsi, so Persian or Farsi. Yes. But again, we, we we often associate it with Iran nowadays, but the earliest places where it's written and emerges as a a literary and a written language are actually more Central Asia, the capital of the the Samarkand, of yes. the capital of the, the Samanid dynasty in in ninth century Samarkand, yes. not so far away from Baal. Yes. And indeed, many of the early Persian Farsi poets, such as Rudaki, in in uh, in the region of what's today afghanistan and indeed bringing up these images of the boti Mahrui, isn't it the, mm-hmm. the moon-faced buddha mm-hmm. that you've summoned mm-hmm. which is still alive and well mm-hmm. through rumi himself who comes from this region isn't he yes. claimed by Bal, yes. although uh, he's actually from vakhsh it seems a little yes. bit north in tajikistan yes. but this really rich heritage that goes on to persian poets of the modern day So, as we finish up and uh, and return to the modern day, mm-hmm. perhaps you can tell us then how much or indeed in what ways the legacy of Balch's medieval past is alive in Afghanistan today.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's very, very much alive, and not only in Afghanistan, I think in the entire uh, Persian-speaking world, uh, balch is is almost a symbol for um, culture, for language, for poetry, for beauty, for Sufism, which we haven't spoken about much, but it's sort of the more mystical uh, type of uh, Islam. And if you walk through uh, the capital of Bach province today, Mazar-e-Sharif, um, which I, I had the pleasure of doing, it's been a while, some 10 years ago, um, when I walked through the city, I was struck by this um, fantastic row of Steely of of stone pillars running through the central Mazar Sharif and when you get closer you see that each of these, and they are dozens, each of these has an image of a man or a woman and a text, a a biography of of these people and the introductory pillar actually references the fazal al-Bach. So these are the very people, men and women, who are mentioned in the fazal al-Bach and in other sources and are connected very closely to the city, so um, and I think what what I took from that is that Balkh is very much an example for, uh, for multiculturalism, multi religiosity, and how Afghanistan um, can serve as a model for that. And so this this image has always stuck with me, and I think it sh- it shows us the legacy of. Um, Bauch in Afghanistan today.
0: Thank you so much for talking to us today in Akbar's chamber.
1: Thank you, Naya. It was a pleasure.